My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater. We're here for another episode of Euripides Humanities. My gosh, we're approaching number 10. This is number 8 now. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, I have in studio today the very first in-person interview. Uh, most of the rest of these have been over Zoom. But this one uh, is one of my oldest friends in theater. We've done a ton of shows here together. She's done every Trident show I've done. Friends and listeners, this is my friend Jenny Reed. Hello, Jenny. Oh. I'm just kidding. I was like, where's my background track? <laughs> Come on, Aaron. Uh, we don't have the budget. Where? <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's sounds free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Uh, Jenny has worked with me in several shows. Yep. She's done a lot of stuff. I kind of know about you, but tell us about your theatrical background and what you're doing now. Oh, my theatrical background, how far back do you want to go? As far as you'd like. I think my first performance on like a stage was when I was about five or six. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Church Jeez. musicals. Okay. So okay. really where I got started, church musicals, plays in school. Mm-hmm. You know, my first big role was the prince in The Prince and the Pauper. Oh. In sixth grade. That is not a female role. No, it's not, and both females played it. <laughs> My next big role was also a bit gender bending. Uh-oh. I was Casca in Julius Caesar. <laughs> okay. Also in sixth or sixth grade, I think. Okay. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. But, you know, I mean, that's where I got started. I mean, the love of theater. I do think it's somewhat genetically wired in me. Ah. The nurturing of it was tough. My family didn't quite get it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. You know, when a little kid watches Annie, mm-hmm. so to speak, and sees herself as a little redheaded girl up on screen, but realizes that that little girl's pretending. Oh, yeah. You know? So, I mean, that's where I got it. And then college, high school, lots of musical theater, lots of mm-hmm. drama, lots of, mm-hmm. you know, competitive drama speech through college. And then kind of got it beat out of me a little bit with my family. <laughs> when you look at it, then like, this is what I really want to like pursue you know, the crickets. Yeah, right, you know, like, right. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. oh, okay, I guess I can't do that. Yep. All right. Yeah, I mean, we both grew up around that time, and it's still kind of there where people are going, career in the arts? Never! Right. You'll never find one. And, you know, I pointed it out a couple yeah. episodes ago where it's like, we're still in this pandemic situation. There are still cities, major cities on lockdown. Lockdown, yeah. And they're binging. Everybody's binging like crazy. People are finding new ways of exploring all of this format of expression, and people are asking for so much more expression. So, I mean, that's what's been really interesting, you know, going for the traditional, well, Mm -hmm. okay, if I can't do what my soul is asking me to do. Right. Then I went, you know, the education route. Right. Because that's Ah. the okay route. Yep. I hated that, dropped that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now you're teaching... Teaching again. Teaching, I'm teaching English. Teaching English. So, right. I mean, I still ended yes. up in education, but mm-hmm. backdoor, all of that. Feeding the soul, though, both right. through teaching English, because it's still, like, gosh, I love it. Mm-hmm. But majoring in English is almost as bad as majoring in <laughs> the arts. Because <laughs> people are like, well, what you going to do with that? Um, pretty much actually anything. You can I wish people edit? Knew, yeah, I wish people knew more of that. Because if I had even known about publishing and editing <laughs> as an undergrad student or even a high school student... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Ah. I totally would have gone that yep. way. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, when you're from Podunk, 
town right. in you know your one school counselor who could care less about anyone. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, good, you have grades that are really good and decent. I don't have to worry about you. You'll go to college eventually. <laughs> You'll just get academia. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. You're helpful. Yeah. Um, by the way, I do have to state that, yes, we are live here in my makeshift studio in my study, uh, in my home, but uh, both Jenny and I have been fully vaccinated. We are yep. fully immune. We are good. all good. Everybody around us is all set up. And numbers in Wyoming are kind of going down. Sorry, rest of the world. I hope you get there soon. We naturally isolate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not on my social lawn. distance. Yeah. Social yeah. distance is a very old Wyoming term, I yep. believe. Yep. But I think what is kind of cool about our friendship is that it's yeah. come out of a commitment to community theater, which frankly yes. is just another leg of the entire theatrical community and that it keeps it vibrant and keeps it going. I mean, I think it's all for overlooked sometimes Yeah, because you know, it's that, Oh, well anybody can do it kind of idea. So I don't think sometimes people get it. Right. So right. yet I mean, people comment though to us i think i think Mm -hmm. you heard it i've heard it you know wow there's so much talent in this town (laughs) how do you memorize all those lines you know (laughs) but i mean there is a lot of people we just it's not our career but it's still our passions it's still our souls it's still what we talk about right it's still what we watch ourselves it's Mm -hmm. what we're invested in it's what we you know, nerd and geek out over. Yeah, and it's so. and, and it is a forum. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it's it's a place where uh, you know we can uh, be able to enact that and bring things to light that uh, you know might not otherwise be brought to light. You know, we've done some. I, I, uh, we've done some great not, things together. Not to boast. No but, boast. Okay. Boast, my friend. Yeah. There's a difference between boasting and being like <laughs> really, really excited about what you have done and what oh you've gosh. accomplished. And I don't think yeah. that should get glossed over things that you have chosen that you, I mean, you've stretched me as, mm-hmm. as a person in theater and multiple fashions and ways. I mean, awesome. from the first time you stepped in. So Aaron had to step into oh a boy. role for me <laughs> when we were doing a play because it was, it's a whole situation, but he stepped in and that was really, I think that was the blossoming of our friendship probably Boom. back then. And it was there like, was- it never stopped. And, and now he's the brother I never asked for. Yep. And now we constantly are like, hey, what do you think of this thing? Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. okay. I want to bounce this idea off We do. Okay, that, I love yep. that. All the time. It's such All a great time. thing. Yeah. I guess the idea of <laughs> strong bonded relationships between theatrical artists and understanding that they can probably go a, another direction. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a question to you, Jenny, that has almost nothing to do with theater right now. But, <laughs> of course you are. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what your response is. So, Jenny, what do you know about the growth of New York City's population in the first half of the 19th century? So in the 18... 1800s. 1800 1850s. Like 1800 to 1850s. I know a little bit. It's okay. very, very different. Like Washington Heights, the Bronx, okay. all of that was very different. Oh, up yeah. and coming. I mean, you didn't move to the Upper East Side no. of Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan was literally swamp. Yep. So, I mean, I know some because mm-hmm. of my varied background in all kinds of crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I know some. And I know that there was like an amazingly vibrant multicultural community that was sort of Mm -hmm. flourishing and then literally got trampled to the ground. Yes. Yes. So yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, and it was like, and it was small towns. Yeah. So to speak, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. when you think of like even Yonkers and then that idea of neighborhood though, what we think of as New York neighborhood. Oh yeah. The, the boroughs. yeah, Yeah. Is still, I mean, that's where they began. Right. Was their foundation. Okay. The surprise topic is really interesting. (laughs) At the beginning of the 19th century, (laughs) records indicate that the population of New York City was around 60,000 people. But by 1850, the population had boomed to just over 500,000. This kind of growth was somewhat expected during the antebellum period. The North became the industrial sector, and many people moved to larger cities to follow jobs in manufacturing and shipping. There's still a lot of immigration happening, too. Right. Like a lot. Like a lot. Okay, here. Here we go. Oh, good. Am I segueing? You're not reading off of my No, I'm not. (laughs) I told you I know a lot of junk Uh Mm -hmm. in my head. But a significant amount of this population growth came from the British Isles. Mm -hmm. Thousands of Irish farmers and their families emigrated to the U.S. after the potato famine had virtually destroyed the Irish economy. 
They started emigrating in 1845, and by 1850, the Irish made up a quarter of the population of New York City. Thank you, all my ancestry. <laughs> now, most of the Irish who left carried with them a lot of anti-British sentiment because... They, well placed. Yeah, they blamed the potato famine Misplaced on the British. Misplaced at times, but well placed. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, they, they did kind of blame the potato famine on the British government's policies that help kind of aggravate that famine. Mm-hmm. Now, they found some pretty good company in America. Mm-hmm. Frankly, there was still a lot of anti-British sentiment amongst Americans. A lot of Americans held some pretty strong feelings about the British from the War of 1812. Well, I was just going to say that. <laughs> like, uh, they had just gotten done with another war. Another one. Oh, and speaking of war, they are still kind of going, eh, you Brits from uh, the Revolutionary War. Yeah, we're talking like uh-huh. less than 50 years yep. from the end of one war to this beginning of another to the yep. beginning of another. Yep, yep. Now mix into that Boundary disputes along the Canadian border, <laughs> yeah. and and then economic rivalries between England and America. Well, yeah, there was quite, quite a bit of resentment towards anything British at the time. Hence why our accents are different. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wait, isn't that isn't that actually a thing? Like yeah. uh, the the actual British accent at one time sounded much more like Southern American. Probably. And there's a lot of rumor the, the mm-hmm. dialects of which is another thing I geek over and like <laughs> listen to on especially like even British things like built dialects and things like that. Yeah, the Southern Louisiana, Ooh. Alabama. Mm-hmm. So like we're talking. And Georgia, like Savannah, mm-hmm. like that soft Southern, you know, that right. the genteel, and right. the, not Arkansas. No, that's a little, <laughs> that's a little harder. It's a little harder. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, and, yeah. well, and, and, so. and from what I understand, like the rumor was that, <laughs> well, we don't want to sound like those Americans Correct. anymore. Right. So Which we're really going to invent this we're going to We're going to sound above them. Yes. Now, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, the swell of new residents in cities who are all primarily laborers in various industries led to a solid working class, a middle class. And the middle class, to greater or lesser degrees, held quite a few grudges against the upper class. (laughs) Well, it comes down to privilege, people. (laughs) They began to see that very clear division between the lives of those who did the labor and the lives of those who profited from the labor. Or asked for the labor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, asked and paid. I mean, Um, honestly, (laughs) 100% that's how it worked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mix into all of this, (laughs) deservedly or not, most Americans viewed the British as unnecessarily smug and prudish, bowing to manners when that was not all the time necessary. Frankly, this new working class of the undereducated American laborers mixed with Irish immigrants with an axe to grind, the British were pretty much viewed as self-important, bothersome snobs. Unless you were part of the upper crust and oh, right. money. Oh, God, yes. And then Which is why they kept them. sending their daughters over to England. Because <laughs> heaven forbid they met an Irish guy down the street. Right. Oh, God. Right. I mean, seriously. Hence why but we Papa, have... I'm in love. No, no you're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Taking a bit of a turn here, it can be said at that time that the economic health of a city could be measured by its theatrical activity. Through most of the first half of the 19th century, New York really functioned like a number of cities like Boston and Baltimore or Philadelphia. But when more shipping lines chose to use New York as a harbor, it began to become the economic hub of the eastern seaboard. It was set up that way, though. Uh, Right. You have to remember, even Mm -hmm. constitutionally, it's set up Mm -hmm. to be the hub. It was never the hub. It was never meant to be the hub, hence why they did Continental Congress in Philly. Right. Yes. (laughs) Now, lots of economic activity means more expendable income. Theater appealed to people from all levels of economic status, and by this time, New York had enough economic growth to support a very healthy theatrical Mm -hmm. environment. But theater buildings were not just used as entertainment venues. All manners of events that required large crowds would use theater buildings. So political rallies and debates, lectures and speeches mm-hmm. on, you know, scientific There were multi-use yes. buildings, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, frankly... Kind of like the, the Staples Center. Right. I mean, it's, it's not just... Yeah, it's a convention center. Yeah. They, they do all kinds of yeah. things there. So really, anything about uh, things of importance in day-to-day life could be seen at a theater. So the buildings themselves not only had a connection to important topics... Some became associated with certain types of economic status. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to this day. To this day. To mm-hmm. this day. Yep. 
While some theaters could be associated with entertainment that anyone could enjoy, but mostly would appeal to the lower, lower. and middle classes, others would attempt to appeal only to the upper classes. You know, arts like opera and ballet, as they were believed to be more refined than all okay, of these. Yet, <laughs> if you look behind the scenes. <laughs> And while it might not have been easily recognizable to theater performers at the time, individual actors also began to appeal to specific classes. Yes. Oh, where are you going? With where this? am I going? <laughs> well, let's talk about one of these performers. <laughs> Edwin Forrest was born in Philadelphia okay. in 1806. He began appearing in plays when he was only 11 and quickly took to learning the works of Shakespeare. But his father died soon after his theatrical career began, and he had to take other means of industry in his late teens. He apprenticed for several different... He had to get a real job? Yeah, he had to get a real job. (laughs) Now, to make a little side scratch, Edwin volunteered to be a subject in experiments with nitrous oxide. Laughing gas. Are you serious? (laughs) I didn't know there was such a thing in the early to mid-1800s. Are you serious? Uh I mean, I knew the opium stuff. I mean, it's like ether and... Oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 okay, okay. That makes sense. It was said that while under the influence of NO2, he would often break into soliloquies <laughs> and bring his fellow test subjects to the, <laughs> to the heights of their emotions, whatever the speech might have been. Whether it was Henry V, St. Christian's Day. <laughs> Please tell me he also was like using like new stuff. Like Byron and stuff. Oh no, it was all Shakespeare. So it was all Shakespeare under yep. the influence. Under the influence of laughing gas. Shakespeare would have loved this. I know. I know. Well, if he actually If wrote. he actually existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. Maybe <clears throat> his sister wrote it all. There is... Oh, I opened a door. I just opened a door. That's okay. Okay. If it makes people go back and listen to my for- former episodes, it's fine. Hey, that'll work. <laughs> One such test subject was a prominent Philadelphia lawyer who was so impressed with the soliloquy from Richard III... While he was also under the influence? While he was under okay, the influence. Okay, just checking. That he arranged... Richard III? Yeah, Richard III. <laughs> <laughs> a horse! A horse! My God! A horse! <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Now, he was so impressed with this that he arranged for Edwin to get an audition oh, at the Walnut Street Theater where Edwin's formal career began. Really? <laughs> okay, Comes why has this not been film made um, on celluloid? There's more to the story. Exactly my point, uh-huh, though. Uh-huh. But come on, they always talk about the, the discovery story. Yep. You can't write that. Um, I think once we get to the end here, you'll see why okay. that might not have been like the story to tell. Okay, that's not foreshadowing I like. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> Rather early in his career, Edwin became known for his performances in blackface. And would play <gasps> oh, never quite mind. often. <laughs> in today's day and age, this is not going to be appropriate. Oh, it was actually reported that Edwin was so good at blackface that he could leave the theater in blackface and intermingle with African-American people completely unnoticed. It was said by whom? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Snort number one, now the drinking (laughs) game begins. Edwin became quite well known for playing the Native American chief, Metamora, in the play of the same name as well. So he had no no compunction about, (laughs) you know, roles. If this were on film, my face would be going, I am trying to stay with you, (laughs) I really want... Yeah, I don't... I'm fascinated, though. I'm fascinated. It's difficult to find a hero in this story. But it's also, though... (laughs) But it's also a very, very good snapshot of not Mm -hmm. only the time period... Right. But also the cultural mindset of that oh, yeah. per- of performance yeah, yeah. at the time. Why try to get somebody who is of that descent when we've got our own people in makeup? Yeah, it worked. Yeah. I mean, then we'd have to acculturate those people. Yeah. Right. And we'll think about how long it took for actors of color to get known Oh my God. Almost a century after this story yeah. begins. Right. And even then was like, right. I mean, Paul Robeson's career should mm-hmm. be like lauded mm-hmm. amongst everyone. And yet yep. no one knows him. Right. They don't even realize. Right. But yeah, anyway, whatever. Sorry. Tangent. That's all right. But generally, Edwin became known for his Shakespearean roles. His I wonder why. working man's <laughs> physique and his strong jawline. He was actually kind of a handsome guy. And he was pretty tough and muscular. 
Could have been a boxer, but he became right. an actor. Right. Okay. Frankly, he looked like one of the laborers that most New York, the most Relatable. New York economy yeah. depended on. And when he made his way to New York, the majority of his most devout followers would be members of the working class. Yeah. They liked seeing someone that they could relate to playing these classic parts of the bard. It made it seem like someone had created a man that was a translation machine for them that gave them access to these things that otherwise might be considered only for the elite. So it kind of full circled the original audience of those plays. Right. Yeah. Back to whom they were right. meant for. Exactly. Exactly. And especially in America. Well, yeah. Which... It uh, became the upper classes thing, don't touch our Shakespeare. We, we know Shakespeare. Right, right. And, and it's like, course, uh, yeah. yeah, no. Yeah. And I mean, uh, at this point, America's not even 100 years old. So they, no. they're still yeah. going, what is our culture? Yeah, they don't have one. They're so developing it, yeah. Right. yeah so yeah. it's kind of neat to have this guy that's like the star who is doing this cool stuff. And he's he looks like you. He's that guy. I get. I bet I could get a beer, beer with, with him. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, Edwin's first performance in New York was as Othello in the Bowery Theater in 1829. Now, did they always do Othello in blackface, though? I think so. Really? Yeah. Like, always? Because I, I, I know they do it in yeah, they opera. Do, I know they do it on opera. And mm-hmm. the, the history of Othello in opera is always traditionally. But, right. but playing Othello in opera is still fairly young. Right. As far right, as historical right, right. performances. No, I think, I think it was... It was Just definitely. Given Edwin's history, it probably Probably. <laughs> All right. Now, for that role, it is rumored that he was paid much lesser than an actor of his clout should have been paid, and he had been offered to play the role at a different theater nearby for the salary that he should have been making. But Edwin refused the higher offer, more or less stating that a working man shouldn't break his promise. What? Yep. Are you, wait, wait, okay. wait, wait, wait. Now, the truth of this story is ambiguous, but it just further enhanced Edwin's legendary gonna, status. Well, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, no, 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 you're probably already on stage. Guy was waiting for him off stage, like, yeah. hey, we'll pay you more. And he's like, damn it, I'm under contract. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But people saw that and they went, you know, Edwin, he got a contract to go get more money and he refused it. That's a guy I want. That's a guy I want burying my uncle. <laughs> That's it. He's going to be a Paul Bearer. All right. Now. Edwin's popularity grew over the next several years, and he played back and forth in Philadelphia and New York, and eventually his popularity grew to the point where he was sought after, uh, sought after overseas. In 1836... Ooh, ooh, he hit the big time! In gotcha. 1836, Edwin took a 10-month contract in England, where he first played Spartacus in a play called The Gladiator. Mm-hmm. The reason you probably haven't heard of this play is because it was panned by critics, mm-hmm. but... They did at least state that his performance in it was great. Okay. <laughs> for everybody listening right now, here's a warning for the rest of this episode. Oh, crap. From here on out, I will be referencing the Scottish play. So if you are in a theater or are otherwise super Get out now. Bad, I'll leave the decision <laughs> to you. Feel free to do what you want. But you're going to be missing an awesome story if you turn this off now. Anyway. It's okay. We're not listening. So I will be saying the name of the Scottish play and its eponymous protagonist quite often through the rest of this episode. Interesting. So after the gladiator so closed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> he was seen throughout London at various venues. He was especially noted for his portrayals of Othello, again, King Lear, and Macbeth. It was hmm. while he was on tour that he first crossed paths with British actor William McCready. Oh, that is a name I actually do recognize. Oh, you do? Mm. Yes, but I'm like, okay, 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 pulling out the cobwebs, Mm -hmm, pulling out mm -hmm, the cobwebs, mm -hmm. but continue. Okay. MacReady was one of Britain's most famous actors at the time, also known quite well for his Shakespearean roles, among other things. Rather infamously, MacReady was remembered for playing the title role in William Tell. According to the reports, in the famous Apple and the Arrow scene, MacReady had the apple on his head. This is what I'm remembering! Yes, okay, okay. He had the apple on his head. Yep. And at the moment the arrow was to be shot, the actor playing the archer uh, would not actually shoot, shoot an it, arrow, yep. but would make it look like an arrow was shot. Then, MacReady would have an arrow that had been split in half hidden in his costume. And when the apple is shot off, he would bend over to pick it up and stick the two ends in the apple, yeah. making it look like he'd shot right through it. Well, on one performance, he didn't realize that the arrow had not been broken in half. So, he bends over to pick up the apple, has a full arrow... And stands up. He couldn't really complete the illusion, 
broke character completely and complained about why he had been made to look so unprofessional in front of a live audience. Because pointing it out always helps. <laughs> As we have seen in modern circumstances with turn the damn phone off. <laughs> Boy, I really want to see Miss Lapone in more things now. Just kidding. I wouldn't mind seeing Patty. Anyway. Um, you it, always want to see Patty, even it, yes. if it's for her yelling at you to turn your damn phone off. Oh, God, she yelled at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Edwin and McCready eventually did meet, and at first were quite amenable to each other. McCready and... It's not going to go well, is it? Because <laughs> what I'm remembering of my... like, So one of my theater instructors in college mm-hmm. was like, Loved digging into the obscure Ooh. beginnings of like actors mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that. So we would hear in the McCready story of William Tell because nobody really looks mm-hmm. at William Tell. And it's just funny how it's done on stage sometimes. Right. I mean, it's just it should almost be farcical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Mark, I remember Mark telling us we always talk about actor ego. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That I feel like this is going to um, definitely come into play. Oh soon. boy, um, yeah. Okay. Which is one of the things I would like to point mm-hmm. out to the listening audience. <laughs> <laughs> That Aaron and I, it's probably the best thing about our friendship is that we um, don't let each other have such actor ego. <laughs> hey, hey, that was a really great performance. Knock it the hell off. Uh, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so, McCready even entertained Edwin when he first got to England. Edwin was praised <laughs> in several roles, including the aforementioned Macbeth, Othello and King Lear. And well, because those were, McCready didn't do as many, like, he did... William Tell, he did a, he yeah, did a couple yeah. of the others. So it was like they mm-hmm. could share. Right, right. Probably at the beginning, I'm guessing. Right, yeah. <clears throat> now, while on tour, Edwin met and eventually married Catherine Horton Sinclair, or Norton, Catherine Norton Sinclair, the daughter of popular British singer John Sinclair. Oh, my Edwin gosh. returned home with his new wife once his contract was up in 1837. And listeners, loyal listeners, may remember Catherine from episode six on Laura Keene. Catherine got Laura work in San Francisco and Australia. Yeah. She became a producer on her own. Okay. Edwin continued to work to some success in Philadelphia and New York. But in 1845, Edwin returned to the UK again for another tour. Again, he was met with success with his heroic tales for the most part, because they like to see the big guy playing the, the strong, tough guy roles. But it's when the audience saw him again as Macbeth that they began to cool to his performance. Oh, oh, oh. McCready had taken up the role after Edwin had left the first time and left an indelible impact uh-huh. on the greater British audience. Oh, yeah, because that means, like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when they're picking a new James Bond and people are like, well, it can't be as good as fill in the blank. And... Sean Connery. I do like Daniel Craig. I do like Daniel Craig. <laughs> but it's... but it's that's Timothy Dalton should have never gotten the role. That's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was hard for me as an X-Men fan to see anybody else besides Ian McKellen play Magneto. Oh, and Fassbender killed it. Oh, I, I agree. Fassbender I agree. It's it. like you you always go, mm-hmm. um, okay, whenever they're doing a remake or a reimagining, yep. you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, 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 yeah. But yep. sometimes it works beautifully, and yeah. sometimes, mm-hmm. why was there even a second one? So. <laughs> For Edwin, beyond the audience having this pre-established idea of how Macbeth should be performed now... And there's a lot of people that have that opinion. Right. Even Mm -hmm. to this day. Right. Okay. London audiences also had a difficult time with someone who looked like Edwin playing the role of Macbeth. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Apparently, having that big, stocky, muscular guy... But that, to me, in some ways would... Well, and, and I think because it, it, it is not compared, the lordly, yeah. maybe. Well, and compared to Macready, yeah, who was, was not big and no. stocky. I mean, he was uh, he was fairly average. He was lean, um, and he was a lot more genteel in yes. his approach. So it wasn't you know uh, gritty. Yes, exactly. And that's a, that's what Edwin brought to the role. They didn't like that. When audiences began hissing at Edwin whenever he would come on stage as Macbeth, his ire really started to grow. He soon quit the part and was convinced that McCready was behind the negative reception to his performance, even though there is very little evidence to support this at all. Audience ficklety yeah. is a thing. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I could give night an amazing tonight. performance here and then go two hours south, and they'd be like, I don't get it. Yeah. yeah. Material-wise mm-hmm. or even just nuance-wise, yep. you know, there's always little things that can change, and that's not usually a conspiracy. No. <laughs> So, 
Edwin attended a production of Hamlet in Edinburgh with MacReady in the lead role. Edwin was particularly interested to see this performance as word had reached to him that MacReady incorporated what he considered to be some sort of effeminate dancing into Hamlet's to be or not to be speech. During the performance, Edwin made his rather envious contempt for the performance fairly well known. Like he would sit there and just huff. And like make audible noises yeah, when he really sh- Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, gotcha. when McCready finished the to be or not to be speech, Edwin stood up in his seat and loudly hissed at the stage. Seriously? Wait, wait, wait. I've heard a picture of this. I've heard a picture of this guy. And then... And, and by yeah. opposing me. Of who? Of who? And them. Which is funny because you only hear about hissing in certain audience contexts. It's not like, you know, the American audience has perfected the boo and the right. audible guffawing at an audience. But the hissing... Uh-huh. Like, I don't know if I've ever actually like participated in an audience, been been involved in an audience where that actually... I mean, I've been in some audiences that have booed. I have been mm-hmm. in some audiences that have, like, I was backstage and they were booing and I totally <laughs> got why. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But the hissing and one yep. guy, one stocky, guy. Mm-hmm. and then you're not hearing this, like, guttural, like... Boo! Like, yeah, yeah. You know, when he's like... Hiss. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, um, if you take the effeminate mm-hmm. dancing and then yeah. you give it a hiss, uh-huh. aren't you supporting it? I don't know. He was the only one to do well, so. Well, I'm guessing, yes. The crowd around him became quite incensed, but did very little about it during the performance. <laughs> the, way you're it, the way you're going about telling us was very British in and of itself. Oh they became very incensed so, so at the American. Yeah. Hiss. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, God. Okay. And of course, they knew him. Well, yeah, I they mean, had just seen him. He's a celebrity. He's touring the country. And there's not that many celebrities, no. so they're gonna be much yep. more known. So, over the next several days, <laughs> news of Edwin's disruptive behavior news of had his been, hiss. yeah, the news of his hits <laughs> had been reported in print, and Edwin's popularity soured pretty much overnight. Edwin wrote a letter of defense to the British paper, The Times, oh, citing, that's not gonna help. citing his reasons for being able to hiss at such a performance. Really. Really? It, Be more American, dude. McCready even issued a statement that more or less condemned the behaviors of his contemporary. Basically, well, I would never do anything like that. Of course not. <laughs> I'm not I, that is beneath me. Edwin returned to the States completely disgraced and with more than a little grudge. There's an ocean. Get oh, I mean, okay. seriously. Hold on, hold on. No. Now, what may have exacerbated this perceived rivalry was that McCready had already toured America in 1843 and 1844. So this hissing event happened in 1845. His acclaim had grown to the point where his performances were desired in the States, particularly his Shakespearean roles. Tour did have some success, but American audiences didn't take to McCready like he thought they would. So very similar. Like Edwin goes over there, plays Macbeth. They go, no, no. He comes over here and he's like, this is how you do Shakespeare. And they're like, well, it ain't my Shakespeare. To make matters worse. Yeah, that makes, yeah, wow. Okay. (laughs) Edwin toured at the same time in the States. In 43 and 44. Uh Uh-huh. Also playing Shakespearean roles, and often in venues near McCready's performances. Or probably even, like, piggybacking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Edwin was not necessarily oblivious to the string of coincidences, <laughs> and American papers praised Edwin's performances over McCready's. Of course they would. Mm-hmm. Hometown boy. Yeah. So, once he There's goes- the rivalry. I mean, you're not going to have it. It's yep. not, it has nothing to do with actual performances, no. probably. No. At all. Mm-hmm. No. And everything to do with- Station. Well, and, and, but it's also, you know, Birth. the homeboy. I, I think just at the time, just the audience appreciated what he had to offer more. It was not as academic. It was not as pouring into each text. He was he was raw and literal and emotional and everything. And, and, and that American. Spoke to them, and American. Spoke to them on their Spe- level. It speaks to yeah. the American right. development of the culture right. at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So throughout the 1840s, oh the seeds of rivalry between the two had been firmly planted. <laughs> No. Mix this with the anti-British sentiments that have been stewing in America. Also mix with this that each actor had been hailed as the greatest living actor. (laughs) Also mix with this that Edwin was America's first real star actor who could, for lack of a better word, compete with someone of the reputation of MacReady. 
also mixed with this, while theater remained massively popular, this was also because the buildings were gathering places for communities in America, and quite often during performances, audience members would break the peace to let their displeasure be known about virtually anything, anything. that came to mind while it was on stage. Because they had an opportunity. Yep. I think it was on the episode of uh, Secrets, that uh, like two episodes ago, where my guest and I talked about actors who've played Iago oh, yeah. being assaulted. Yeah, <laughs> like I mean, audience members are in the uh, in the house. Truly, and, the easiest yes. character to hate. Right, and audience members have actually gotten out of the chairs and tried to stop him from what he's doing. So it was kind of no. Like that's that. Amelia's yeah. job. <laughs> But I can I can just see that I can just see that you know like, Hamlet don't do it out there just yeah like, yeah like, well, that's very that's also I think more American mm -hmm. because if you look at look at even modern audiences yeah and interactive theater so to speak oh my god sometimes now mm -hmm. I mean which we we do a little bit I mean it's the popularity of American theater it's right. switched in the modern sense I think mm -hmm. of who looks to whom right but yeah it's that cultural development, yeah. which is really interesting so, to think about. Yep. So anyway, <laughs> to be honest, the American people saw the rise of Edwin Forrest as an opportunity to create an American yeah. style of theater that could rival that of the British. Thus, out of little effort of his own, Edwin's popularity in America grew to almost iconic status. And Edwin more often performed at the Bowery Theater in New York, which was in a working class section. Yes, at the Bowery. Yes, at the Bowery a lot. And the upper class audience avoided that area. Oh, yeah. Because mm -hmm. so, if you were seen in that area, yes. it was because of some untoward behavior you were planning. So here's, here's what the upper class did. They commissioned the building of their own theater. Is this? The How? Astor Place Opera House. Yeah! Opened in 1847. <laughs> no, that was like a, an answer to the upper class issue of not having to go to the bad part of town. Yep. So mm -hmm. it's not their part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the beginnings of those dividing lines oh, yeah. in New York mm -hmm. and those, I mean, mm -hmm. even if you look at like Boston, Philly, Baltimore, the dividing lines are, are, are skewed. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not as very, very distinct as you see. Right. Street to street oh, in man. New York. Yep. So. God, the geek in me is, like, like, living for this right now. In 1849, McCready made his return to the States. Oh, dear. Why would he do... Why would he even think that was a well, good idea? Because the purveyors and the sponsors of Astor Place had scheduled McCready again to play at their venue. So they're still trying to kind of be British oh, yes, and separate much. themselves. Yes, yes. Yes, he's he's the thing. Well, and these he's, are the parents that mm -hmm. send their daughters away. Right, right. Later, like in right, 20 years. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, Astor Place had a pretty dismal year in 1849 just showing why. opera. <laughs> so it changed its name to the Astor Place Theater. And then it invited audiences who had not usually been in the building before. McCready's performance of Macbeth would take place on May 7th. Hundreds of tickets were bought by Edwin's supporters so they could all go heckle his rival. They planned a coup. <laughs> oh, oh, if it were only a coup. Um, oh, crap. Up to the point where McCready takes a stage as Macbeth in the third scene. The crowd was relatively quiet. Well, yeah, because there's not that much that goes on anyway. Yeah. <laughs> However, when he took the stage, he was met with hisses and shouts from the fiery crowd. Now, are they hissing because they hiss in England? I, I don't know. I, I, I think it was just, you know, it's like the old melodramas that are still put on. You can yes. boo and hiss, and that's just your sign of displeasure. Okay. Psss, psss. I guess it's like, psss. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I just, it's really hard for me to picture. And of course, once he left the stage, it became somewhat quiet again <laughs> until he returned. That's when things started to be thrown from the audience. Ooh. A quote from McCready's diaries detailed what had been hurled at him that night. Let me see if I can do it in McCready. Oh, yes, please. Four or five eggs, Four. A, a great many apples, <laughs> nearly, if not quite, a peck of potatoes, lemons, pieces of wood, a bottle of, I, I don't know how to pronounce this, asafetida, which is like, I, I had to look it up, it's like a spread. It's kind of like mustard. <laughs> okay. Which splashed on my own dress, smelling most horribly. <laughs> were they rotten apples? Might have been. Because I kind of hope I, not. I'm pretty sure they were rotten eggs, at least. Oh, yeah. yeah. No tomatoes, though. When the third, tomatoes. Yeah, tomatoes. When the third act started, the crowd had apparently run out of things to chuck at the stage, 
So they started picking up their chairs and flinging at the stage. Oh my god! Oh shoot! This is a theater and where the seats are movable because yeah. of those standing yeah. audiences mm-hmm. still yeah. that when they use things. Uh-huh. The oh first no! Landed in the orchestra, which McCready also noted in his journal. It caused a prestissimo movement among the musicians, not set down in the original music for Macbeth. <laughs> Okay, I love the fact that we have this journal entry just for the fact that he makes note of the effect on the music. Uh, yes, yes. Not the fact that there's a freaking chair being thrown in the orchestra pit because of your stupid reception by an American audience. Not your fault. But they messed up the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And you just, I mean, the scene had to, like, oh my the way God. he describes that right there is like, the orchestra is in on it. They see the <laughs> chair fly well, in, and, and then they smash, and they go, oh, my God, we gotta play faster or louder. <laughs> because yes. it matches what's going on. We must match the air of chaos. Oh, boy. That is yeah. hilarious. So it was then, when chairs started getting flung around, that McCready ordered the curtain to be shut. And he canceled the rest of that night's performance. Wow, that's some power. Yeah. McCready then vowed to cancel the rest of his contract and return to England outright. But a petition was laid in front of him, and it was signed by 47 of New York's prominent citizens that he would have the full attention of the city and its protections if he would perform again. This position. How are they going to guarantee this? Oh, here we go. This petition was signed by wealthy socialites, oh, yeah. artists, and authors, including. Herman Melville. I was going to say, I bet there's some good names here. And Washington Irving. First of all, the fact that Herman Melville signed this should have been a warning. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean... Can we do that episode next? Oh my. Sorry. No, okay. Moving on. (laughs) McCready was convinced to return to the stage, and the next performance would be scheduled for May 10th. In the days Mm. leading up to the performance, these petitioners used their significant influence to demand that sufficient protection be provided for the May 10th performance. The chief of police had only 300 officers available and informed newly elected Whig Party Mayor Caleb Woodhall of this. Yeah. Woodhall then dispatched military assistance to help out. Therefore, on the evening of performance... At least 150 officers were inside Astor Place, 100 outside the theater, and an additional 350 men consisting of cavalry and infantry could be called upon, even armed with light artillery. Overkill. For a play. (laughs) Uh Where's that kind of protection for us? Right. I mean, seriously. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I had chairs thrown at me. (laughs) And a I believe it was. A peck of potatoes. A peck. I mean, do you know how much a peck is? I counted. There were at least 20. That's a peck. Okay, no, no, I didn't want to, I want to backtrack just, uh, just yeah. to hear, mm-hmm. because you mentioned Whig. Oh, yes. So this is like the, the end of the Whig party era, mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. that tells you a lot of the atmosphere that may mm-hmm. not be, like, historically mm-hmm. the atmosphere of the Whig party and their decline at this time, mm-hmm. because they are super posh. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Now, meanwhile, with this news that McCready would be returning to the stage, (laughs) Tammany Hall captain Isaiah Reinders (laughs) took this as an opportunity to embarrass Mayor Woodhall and the Whig Party. Oh, yes. He printed and distributed handbills that leaned towards American pride and anti-English sentiment, asking, shall Americans or English rule this city? There was still that idea Mm -hmm. of are we, who are we? Right. Who right. are we? Who's running this? Because all y'all who started this are really just a bunch of disguised... You're still Brits. Brits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a few that were gutter, mm-hmm. but not that many. Tickets were handed out to anyone who responded to the handbill. For free? For free. Yep. Now that's PR, man. <laughs> that is PR at its... Oh, oh speaking of PR... Besides appearing as Macbeth in another theater on the same night, Edwin Forrest remained completely silent on the affairs of the evening. Genius! Still played Macbeth on the same Genius! Because McCready's not learning his lesson after the peck of potatoes. Mm, (laughs) He's He's not reading the room. 
Oh boy. What is an actor supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to behave. I'm doing everything. I'm just doing the material. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be sitting there and enjoying it. I even did a dance. Look. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder Lady Macbeth is like out damn spot. Maybe somebody else died. On May 10th, many of the anti-McCready ticket holders were screened and barred from entry. Those that made it in the house were identified before the performance and taken by police into a makeshift prison cell. Oh my god! That had been constructed in the basement. In the basement? Because it was stunt cages from the previous performance. We'll let you out when you can behave. (laughs) However, many still remained. And when McCready took the stage in the third scene, the house erupted in angry shouts again. The police, who were undercover inside the building. Undercover? Yeah, they sat in the house right next to him. This is like the plot (laughs) of a really bad movie. I know. Now. It was really good at the beginning, Aaron, and now it has gone down into... Oh, just wait. Interesting territory. Just wait. <clears throat> the police, who were undercover, were able to round up quite a few of them. But amidst all this confusion, <laughs> rocks began smashing through windows outside and raining down upon the audience. So who's outside throwing rocks if there are 150, I think you said, officers outside? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Police looked outside to see a crowd of 15,000 angry protesters. Oh, dang. <laughs> We serious now, people? Uh-huh. When these protesters tried to force entry into the building, they were held off by the officers outside. When they were turned away, the protesters <laughs> tore down the gas street lights to use as weapons. Oh, my! But also effectively cutting off most of the light sources around the building. Well, yeah. And it's, you know, 7.30 at night in May in, in, in it's, D.C. It's, so it's, it's dusk. It's, yeah, yeah. The growing crowd had found a road construction site nearby, which gave them a full arsenal of bricks and stones to hurl at Astor Place. Well, I mean, that makes sense. You're talking about a working class society who has access. Right. They so, I mean, I mean they be. totally get it. I'm, I'm actually more surprised that they didn't have tools oh, yeah. with yeah. them. Um, but that was because they were trying to disguise themselves as... Right, right. We're just passers-by. We're just, pa- we're just here. We just happen 15, to be mm-hmm. in the upper part of town yep. a block away. Uh-huh. Inside the house... Okay. The remaining anti-McCready patrons did all they could to start a fire inside the building and burn it down, but still mangling it and tearing it apart. Were they, like, willing to die for this? More or less. Wow. They took their theater, wow, serious. Even worse. The militia that had been ordered did not arrive on the scene until 9.15, and the play was, like I said, started at 7.30. Well, that's because they were standing by in case of call. I mean, think about it. It's Mm -hmm. not like they picked up the phone. Yeah. Light artillery, though. Now, the the militia... Something like cannon. Yeah, uh, and I think they had uh, a howitzer, a small one. That would make... Okay, okay, Mm -hmm. okay, okay. Okay, oh my god. Yep. The the militia did have some difficulty reaching the site of the riot due to the aforementioned road construction. (laughs) But the first to arrive was the cavalry, which quickly was turned back by rioters who attacked the mounted soldiers with sticks and bricks and rocks. Okay, Mm -hmm. painting the picture of 15,000 New York theater lovers. Mm -hmm. But when we think of New York theater lovers, let's put this in modern theater context. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> this is the rent crowd. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. These are the these are my kind of people. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think the police back then <laughs> <laughs> were just as like, yeah, do what you want to do, man. <laughs> <laughs> I rode in here on my horse and they started beating at us. I'm not going to. I'm out. Them. Yeah. I'm yeah. out. <clears throat> they touched my horse. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now soon, the infantry was able to make an effort to stop the riot. The infantry was ordered to shoot at some distance so that it could be assured that they would be shooting directly into the crowd. Okay? Wow. Yep. However, the first shot was to be a warning shot. The That's infantry... always what they say. Yep. The infantry was ordered to shoot over the heads of the crowd so the crowd could hear the shots, and that might possibly get them to stop and settle down and get the heck out of there. Again, read <laughs> the room. Uh-huh. Um, the protesters did not. <clears throat> In fact... Not surprising. When they realized, after a volley of gunfire, that not a single one of them had been hit... Oh, it's just going to ur- move them, urge them. Come they, like, ah! they advanced further. Yeah! 
Of course they did. On the next volleys, however, Uh the infantry aimed directly at the crowd and was able to begin subduing them. Subduing, killing? Yeah. Yeah. By this time, the infantry was (laughs) That was a very British phrase, my dog. By this time, the infantry was firing at almost point-blank range, and the crowd began to thin out, and eventually the whole ordeal was settled. Well, yeah, because, I mean, honestly, if your life is in danger, you're going to weigh very quickly Mm -hmm. whether this cause is worth dying for. Yeah. Meanwhile, inside the building, McCready kept performing in dumb show and actually finished the play. A mixed gunfight. <laughs> and the people inside, like, ripping down curtains, throwing seats everywhere. Well, that's commitment. <laughs> I mean, if you could say that, the pansy, which we talked about in, in theater class with William mm. Tell. We never really talked about his Hamlet, which I'm really mm. disappointed about. Mm-hmm. But the, the rip of the theater, I don't care. I am. I am finishing this. And, and you know, That's beyond method, man. There are a couple people sitting there just will you guys be quiet? This is my favorite part. He's finishing. Go ahead. <laughs> Once McCready was done, he snuck out the back in disguise. And oh, it, come on! And he was able to retreat to With his diary. Yes. All in all, some 22 rioters were killed on oh, site. Oh, that's not cool. And many more died within the weeks to come from wounds, and some estimate that the death count was at least 48. Wow. At least 200 people had been wounded, including 70 police officers. From the, from the rioters yep. themselves? Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, a lot of the fatalities in that 48 count earlier came from wildfire to bystanders not even part of the attacks. Just people on the street. People happen because, yeah. yes. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. You also, if the, audi- if the audience doesn't know, uh, <laughs> even to this day, you walked mm-hmm. so much of the city. Yep. And especially then, you walked everywhere. Yep. And if it's evening and it's close to summer, the weather's beautiful. I mean, it is a beautiful, especially in May because the summer heat hasn't hit. Mm-hmm. It is a gorgeous city to walk in. Oh, man. And yeah. so, I, I mean, if you don't go to the theater, you're out. Yep. Everyone's out. Hence why it wasn't surprising that that 15,000 number, because a lot of them I would have just, whether it was even organized or not, they were like, hey, what's going on? Hey, where were you going? Ah, some jerk is playing a thing downtown. Let's go get him. All right. The pubs. Are we going to go drinking at And then all of, you know, the couples meeting up and Mm -hmm. the, you know, there's not going to be as many families out probably, but the people out is always like this huge number. So that's Mm -hmm. unfortunately not as surprising. As I wish it were. It's said that one woman sustained a fatal injury to her leg, and she was several blocks away. So that's a stray bullet. Yeah, but you have to remember what they're yeah. using. Yeah. Muskets. I mean, they're using... Mm-hmm. A, a, the fact that anyone died in mm-hmm. the French and Indian Wars of the British-French skirmish, yeah. like, spats. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. revolution, I mean, even into the Civil War and all that. The fact that... like. They hit anything sometimes. Yeah, is yeah, pretty amazing. Well, it, it's also my understanding that the rioters, once they saw the infantry, like kind of down the street, uh, they saw the infantry applying their bayonets, and that got them mad. And they're like, <laughs> oh, you gotta be kidding me! Well, yeah, these were like, these were like, you know, yeah. I mean, come uh-huh. on, their mindset's going to be really probably skewed. Yeah. As far as probably based on age, McCready's in his. 50s, mm-hmm. Edwin's in his 40s, yeah. strapping young man. Right, right. Probably a lot of these guys are around the same age. Yep. 30s. Yep. And then you're pulling in, though, within the riot, probably even stronger strapping young men. Oh, yes. Who yeah. have very little war understanding oh, of yeah. what all that means. They're just, they're they're just going to get pissed. They're just using mob force. Yeah. And, they, and that body works. To go. Because remember, mm-hmm. oh, I mean, Okay, I cannot believe I'm going to reference Gangs of New York, but, (laughs) son of a gun. I was like, okay. But that idea of brute force, Uh oh, was powerful. Oh, man. And they could do anything with that force. (laughs) Yeah, That's cute, shorty. Yeah, exactly. Most of the rioters who were killed or sustained injuries were lower class or Irish immigrants. Of course they were. Mm -hmm. Because that's their guy. Yep. So what do you do when you have a guy but you defend? But even Edwin had nothing to do except for... Well, okay, he, yeah, that's I mean, arguable, he, though. That's arguable. He didn't, uh, he didn't not tell them. He wouldn't so have he, to go defend himself in a court. Right, yes. Because he incited a riot. But he didn't. Correct, he did not. But he did play Macbeth in, his, in a role. Uh, yeah, okay. Epilogues, here we go. <laughs> 
the building of Astor Place was not able to be recovered. Within the next few years, the shell of the building yeah. had been sold, then mm-hmm. raised, and now the Clinton Hall condominiums stand there. William McCready returned to England and continued acting. His final performance was mm-hmm. of Macbeth mm-hmm. in 1851, mm-hmm. so only two years later. He lived a happy retirement until he died in 1873. Yes, because he was a British actor. Mm-hmm. See that. Edwin Forrest divorced his wife Catherine in 1850. That was dumb. He had been in the midst of a very well-known affair with another actress, Josephine Clifton. Apparently, Edwin felt justified to begin this affair because he found a love letter from uh, fellow actor George Jamieson that Edwin believed was addressed to his wife. Oh, so he had an affair because he thought she was having an affair. Oh, yes, Uh, of course. The love letter was not addressed to his wife. Oh, great. Uh, Needless to say, the split and divorce were very public due to Edwin's fame and, uh, by this point, his notoriety. Journalist Nathaniel Parker Willis defended Catherine in his magazine Home Journal by suggesting that Edwin couldn't hold a candle to Catherine's intellect. He's not wrong. <laughs> Edwin and Catherine filed for divorce in July of 1850. Well, look at her. Look at what she does. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Soon after the Smart filing, girl. Edwin happened to run into Willis in Washington Square Park. Oh, crap. <laughs> Upon seeing him, he shouted, This man is the seducer of my wife! Edwin took to beating Willis with a whip right then and there. Oh, gee! On the men from about with rheumatic fever, Willis really couldn't do anything to defend himself. Oh, my God! (laughs) And all the people there are like, wow, that really tough guy's beating the hell out of that guy with a sniffle. Yeah, because, like, Mm -hmm. he's probably pretty frail, actually, after dealing with that. That's a pretty rough disease, but... Uh Uh-huh. Dude! Yeah. Anger issues. (laughs) Edwin's campaign against Willis didn't end there. Oh, Come on. Over the course of the six-week divorce trial, many witnesses were brought to the stand to testify that Willis and Catherine had been involved in an affair. They had not. One testimony was from a waiter who had claimed that he had seen Willis and Catherine in his restaurant, quote, lying on each other. In a restaurant. (laughs) There was a theme restaurant craze for a while. With and some of them were bed restaurants. What? Some oh, of them okay. were the dark. Okay. Remember, like you just dine in pitch black. Right. Okay. Okay. So I mean, it's plausible, <laughs> but in the eighteen forty fifties, I doubt it. In the end, plus the, with all those petticoats, I mean, yeah, seriously. Yeah. In the end, the judge sided with Catherine, and Willis's <laughs> reputation was restored. Shocker. <laughs> You didn't see that coming. No, no, no. Let me bring in this mime. He saw them. <laughs> He'll tell everything. Hey, what are you and it'll out? take three hours and because he has to get out of the box. Oh, God. He's walking against the wind. Okay. It's <laughs> All right. Edwin never recovered from this loss of popularity. Aww. He kept acting for several years after that, but died from a sudden attack of paralysis in his sleep on December 12th, 1872. He had a stroke. He had a stroke. Yeah. Oh, man. And as I somewhat reported in the episode on Laura Keene, Catherine Norton Sinclair went on to her own success mm-hmm. in theater, becoming a producer in California. Yep. The Astor Place Riot has gone down in history mm-hmm. as one of the deadliest riots to have occurred due to a theatrical performance and is one of the reasons that the play Macbeth is so stigmatized in superstition. Because you can't say the name. And that is the story of the Astor Place riot. I mean, seriously. <laughs> it's something you hear about, and then you're like, unless you dig and become a nerd like us, mm-hmm. you're never going to know the amazingness that is history. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you this picture, and I want <gasps> you to tell me, this is a... Uh, uh... the, okay, there's a guy down front. <laughs> I think... He's in a blue coat, so are those the aristocrats? I, I really don't know. I just see a mangle of people. Yeah, so fighting. a bunch of them have these like blue coats color wise, mm-hmm. and it's like it looks like a guy the guy other guy is grabbing his leg and he's like in a dance position. <laughs> like it's like so, Yeah. So the blue coat elite is like yeah. I know how to fight by dance. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, and then of course Astor Place stands there like this a monolith temple with yeah. these, uh, uh, you know, iconic columns and yeah. Which is great because those other theaters mm-hmm. were such more like almost warehouses. Yeah, it's, they, it's, I mean, like, it's like yeah. Uh, you just go Whereas there. this was yeah. like no 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 no. Yeah. We have opera here, mm-hmm. yep. and I love opera. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> so it's also my understanding that theater riots were not uncommon. Yeah. There was and, no theater etiquette. Right. 
There was none. Right. So that like anything went as far as performance wise too. Because <laughs> you have to, I mean, and that translated into the beginning of film. So, you know, the beginning of film before the censorship of the Gah. 30s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anything before 1933. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, it, that, the same thing happened though in live theater because you had, so you had the posh people saying, oh, no, 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 everything has to be up and up and we, we mm. know etiquette. But then yes. people going, well, where's the fun? Where's the entertainment? Right. Where's right. the interest? Yep. I don't care about that. I want to be mm-hmm. interested in something, and I want to relate to it. Oh, but you see, Bach wrote this when he was in paralysis of his left hand, and it was all in... in uh, Poo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah. It, it, seriously, though. Actually, you know, that's kind of funny. I, I bring that up. Uh, uh, Andra, uh, the woman I'm seeing now, the woman who walks beside me... Um, she and I were looking at, uh, uh, like, a, uh, an expressionist painting the other day. Yeah. It's like a, a post-Cubist expressionism kind of stuff. Kind of like a Pollock type of thing. Okay. And she was just going, well, I don't, I don't see what this is. I, I, like, I understand that there's stuff here. I can appreciate. Right. And, and, and even I'm going, I'm like, a, and I'm there, I turned on my, like, artistic sensibilities. Like, well, you see the passion. You see how she had to, like, stand here and put the paint on there for a while. If it doesn't speak to you, it doesn't speak to you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you cannot see the quote-unquote intent of the artist. Right. Right. So? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But theater back—I mean, theater back then was fascinating to look at because oh, so mu- and so much of the history I think is needs to be discussed because I think it gets lost. Oh yeah. And everybody knows about some of it, but it was still mm-hmm. in some ways frowned upon. Yes, we have these successful celebrity actors and actresses and performers, but so many of them were considered still beneath the population that was. Mm-hmm. Pushing them to right. perform, right? So it was such this dichotomy of hypocrisy. Like, it was like, yes. oh, it was so yeah. critical. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think the funny thing that I like to take about this is that uh, people can be convinced. Oh yeah, 100%. of virtually anything as long as their emotions are manipulated in the right way. I mean, in this in, groupish mentality. So yeah, yeah. I mean, in it's, in this specific instance, like this probably would not have been as serious a thing had there not been this huge anti-British sentiment. Had there not been the growth of this guy who was like, "Hey, man, we're actually I'm one of getting you. there." You know? Yeah. We're 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 getting there. Yeah. It's going to be good. And had it not been for the ego of both of these guys, I mean, obviously, yes, and, and they, they, they yeah. planted the seeds. Yeah. The seeds are planted by in many various ways. In many uh-huh. different ways, and you cannot. It's it's something you and I talk about all the time. Is yep. you cannot isolate right. things. Mm-hmm. You have to look contextually at so much, right? And that doesn't negate the moment. No, ever. Whether it's on stage or in life, right? It doesn't negate the moment, but you cannot isolate everything to the extent of okay, nothing influenced this, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Which people still to this day try right, to do. Right. And like I always say, there is nothing new. <laughs> we have not changed that much. No, no, no. I mean, uh, God, I, uh, why am I constantly returning to Dwayne Johnson in this episode? But I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, that was like the last actor rivalry that I've heard of is like Dwayne Johnson and Vin Diesel I guess when they were doing the Fast and the Furious oh the Fast and Furious movies they, they did like two bald, bald yeah. like set men yeah I yeah, guess. yeah. Uh, I guess they had a big problem with each other but that's all I heard about it that's all I heard about it it's the Lindsay Lohan Britney Spears mm. Paris Hilton May, like, uh, Hillary Duff oh my god yeah but that that's not even them no, that wasn't even it's, them. It's they, outside. Yeah, yeah. like it's, somebody somebody stoked that fire. And it's also not new. So there's like this new ta- new term in media with infotainment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. It's not new. No. Retractions are not new. Mm-hmm. Escalating fear or mm-hmm. interest or selling papers. Oh yeah. That is the oldest game in the book right now. Well. It was funny, like the handbill that I talked about. Yeah, was handed out by oh. the Tammany Hall guy. Do you did you find it like a copy? of it? Yeah. Oh, son of a gun, that's. Awesome. I mean, it has 
at least an exclamation point after almost every line. <laughs> and they're not done <laughs> with the actual phrase. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Americans are English rule! And it's a political pamphlet. Yep. Yep. English arist aristocratic opera house. Yeah. See, Working the, men! The, Free the, men! The big words that would, that would incite somebody. Yeah. Opera house. Oh, I don't like that term. It's yeah. associated with that, Well, just the people. whole Americans mm -hmm. or English rule. That's all they had to say. Mm -hmm. Period. Yep. And my guess is the majority of those people in that 15,000 group oh, yeah. had no idea what was really going on. Oh, they might have, though. I mean, if But I would saying, say there's a bunch of them yeah. that didn't. If you're saying that the city was right close to... 500,000 people at that time, yeah, a okay. quarter of them being Irish immigrants, and a lot of them just being working class people who are living in terrible yeah. conditions, but have found this community amongst themselves. Yeah. But you're right. There are probably a bunch of people who are like, well, I could go for a fight. Yeah. <laughs> What's happening? I got nothing to do. So, there we go. Wow. <laughs> Fascinating! <laughs> I love when you bring me things that I actually like. No, like bits and pieces, oh, but then you man. like give me mm -hmm. this wealth of wonderfulness that mm -hmm. I'm like, ooh, who else can I talk to? With? Yeah, I heard about this one several years ago, and I went, no freaking way. Yeah. I mean, like, like I was I, expecting maybe uh, them to like end up dueling or something. <laughs> I would just kill to have some of that like notoriety <laughs> like somebody's like well trident's doing a show and and just screw them yeah yeah and just outside people are rah, 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 rah. you know that would sell tickets to your next show heck yeah man <laughs> <laughs> well there we go we can Aww. we know we can uh talk for a guide while <laughs> the, guide the people in whatever way we want so in the palm <laughs> of the hand <laughs> well That'll do it for today's episode of Euripides Humanities. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. That was incredibly fun to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. This yep. is so fun. And for my listeners, we will catch you in a couple weeks. Thank you. Hey friends, this is your host Aaron Odom coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode, and if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up, or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater, that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. -E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. Them, and we try to get a new episode out every two weeks, so hope to see you again in a fortnight. Apocalypse, apocalypse, I said, why you want to show?